Oh my god, I was being indoctrinated. <laughs> Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. I'm your host Oscar Fuchs. If you heard the last show, you will already know that I've been down with COVID-19 for the first time. I was very sluggish and low energy for a couple of weeks, and then I managed to go travelling for a short trip, and now I'm back in Shanghai and feeling almost back to normal. So the good news is that I'm finally back to work on the next few episodes coming up. The bad news is that I've fallen quite far behind in my production schedule, so today is not a full episode. But I have some bonus content in the form of an interview that I did on another podcast called The Bridge, which is hosted by Beijing residents Jason Smith and Beibei. The Bridge is a show produced by CGTN, one of the state-run news networks here in China. So it's not quite as independent as Mosaic of China, and I decided to hold my tongue a little bit at some points. But in general, it's a fun show. They do a good job, and we cover some different ground from other interviews that I've done recently. So I'm happy to share an edited version in the feed today. The full version was a lot longer, so if you want to hear that, please head to the bridge wherever you listen to podcasts, where I think you'll find my episode was released sometime back in April. As for Mosaic of China, there are still eight great episodes left in season three. So while you're listening to today's show, I'm going to head back to work, and I hope to see you back here soon with episode twenty-three. Today we are joined by a fellow podcaster who interviews folks who are making their mark on China. In August 2019, Oscar Fuchs launched Mosaic of China, a light-hearted English language podcast. Oscar has also co-founded a Singapore-based headhunting company. He has lived three years in Japan, one year in Germany, six years in Singapore, three years in Hong Kong, and seven years <laughs> in China's mainland. He is a British national and currently resides in Shanghai. He earned a master's degree in Chinese philosophy from Shanghai. <laughs> Jiaotong University. We'll never hear the end of it from Baby. Now, welcome to the bridge, Oscar. Oh my God! You've done your research. <laughs> my goodness, who is that guy you're describing? <laughs> you lived in Germany. You lived in Japan. You lived in Singapore. You lived in Hong Kong. You lived in Shanghai. Why traveling all over the world like this? Is this your passion? Maybe I'm running away from something, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's not what I was indicating,、hmm. but I guess it's a passion.、Um, it's not something I ever planned. Honestly, I happened to have landed in different situations where I just sort of went with the flow,、mm. and、mm-hmm. if an opportunity arose. I said yes.、Uh, where others might have questioned it, I just jumped in.、Um, that's、mm-hmm. certainly what happened、um, with most of those moves. It sounds really cool when you look back over twenty years, but each of those moves were pretty much unplanned. I want to ask: Can you tell other people who might be thinking about traveling and actually living in foreign countries what to fear and what not to fear? Were you ever fearful about going to new places? I wasn't. I always. Like the adventure, and I'm sure there are many people listening who feel the same way. But、mm. I mean, yes, there are always nerves involved. I think if you didn't have some nerves, you'd be a bit of an idiot, right? <laughs> you, you have to have <laughs> some trepidation. I think、mm. if I was to give any advice, it would be. 
people are people are people. Mm. Yes, there are different languages, there are different customs, there are different foods. Even once you know a language, there are different mm. ways of communicating. Mm. Um, right. which you might find strange, maybe too direct, maybe not direct enough. Mm. But then when it comes down to it, everyone is pretty much the same. Mm. There are right. people who can stress themselves out thinking, oh, how am I going to fit into Japan? How am I going to fit into China? I'm going to have to learn all the customs, going to read all the books. I mean, yes, mm. you can do that. And mm. it's very respectful to do it. It's respectful to understand it. It's not necessarily the secret to your mental health and well-being yeah. to try and adopt everything. You can learn a lot about other cultures, but actually you end up learning a lot about your own culture, just how it's mirrored through a different culture. Absolutely. You can say, oh, I always thought that's how you do things. And now it's being done completely differently. Mm. Maybe I've been complacent. If somebody asks you, okay, how's it done in your country? Then you've got to think about, yeah, how the hell is it done in my country? <laughs> and, and, and why do we do that? And mm. that's half of the fun of this cultural communication. It's not just about learning about other cultures. It's about recognizing the weird things about yourself. <laughs> yeah, mm. I, absolutely. That's true. It goes mm. both ways. I want to change Here the topic a little bit. You sure, did sure. a master's degree dissertation on Confucianism and music. Could you share with us a little bit about what are some of the points that you made in that dissertation and how is music part of Confucianism? <laughs> this is where I start to get nervous because it was a <laughs> master's degree, not a PhD, guys. It's part of uh, rights, right? That's what I would start with because we have one idea of what music is these days. You know, we have our MP3 players or mm -hmm. we go to music concerts. That's not what music was back in the days of Confucius. In, mm. in the days of Confucius, you had no access to music apart mm. from if the local lord put on some kind of ceremony mm. where they would drag you from your farm, from what you were doing, mm. and they would make you listen to this concert, which basically was just a variety of different bells. We're talking very, very simple music. What Confucianism saw music at was a way to bind people together through a shared sense of morality and harmony and social cohesion. And then later on, the other Confucianist thinkers, they also extended that to a political value and a tool for political solidarity and obedience, obedience and power, especially in the imperial era mm -hmm. of China. So that's really what Confucianism thinks of as music. It definitely has to be absorbed in this ritualized context, and it has mm. to foment this shared identity and mm. a willingness to participate within this prescribed social order. Wow. You know, actually, I that doesn't sound too dissimilar from a rock concert. Exactly. <laughs> well, I'm just, exactly. you know, everyone gets together, becomes one mind, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. And you feel the power of something when it's given to you through music, much more so than if it's delivered just as a boring lecture, right? Right, if absolutely. You know, you could read a poem yeah. or you could hear a lyric. People mm, go around yes. singing lyrics from songs all the time. Yeah, yeah exactly. without even realizing sometimes. And yes, it goes into your soul. And especially yeah, yeah. if you have it at school, you know, the songs that we learn at school, mm. they're the ones that you are ending up singing 30 years later. And then you realize like, oh my God, I was being indoctrinated. <laughs> <laughs> and you didn't even realize what the song was all about <laughs> until like decades later. Blasted yeah. ABCs stuck in my head forever. <laughs> yeah, and Confucius mm. was so into it. And he had, you know, a great ability to appreciate music. 
you know, even back in the day of Confucius, he had such a lot to do with music, where you look mm. at Socrates and Aristotle mm -hmm. and all, all the Western thinkers, and actually music wasn't such a big component of their thought back then. So there was something that Confucius himself thought of much more so than was happening elsewhere, which I just found fascinating. I mean, the guy was right. <laughs> and I think maybe it's something you said about how music hits the soul. Like it's at a level that's above logical thinking. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think a lot of Western ancient philosophers, they were really into logical discussions. But Chinese philosophy, I feel like it's at a different place. It seeks after something that's more essential. I mean, even for Chinese people, we don't dare to study it because it's so hard. So what led right. you to Chinese philosophy? Hmm. What happened, good Oscar? <laughs> Does the phrase midlife crisis mean anything to you? Uh, sure. Oh. No, no. I mean, uh, what happened was I'd basically been in Asia for 18 years mm. and I realized mm. that I had a very superficial knowledge and it wasn't just philosophy. I didn't know all the different dynasties. Mm. I didn't know anything. And in fact, the course I did, it was actually a master's in modern China studies mm. with a major mm. in philosophy. So actually mm -hmm. it was a mixture of philosophy, history and literature. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was the nice. perfect course, Buddhism and Confucianism and Taoism. These are things that I'd heard for two decades, but never really understood what the differences were. Mm. Um, but look, right. in general, each philosophy appeals to different types of people. So it's extremely pragmatic. So for example, mm. if you are someone who is looking to become a middle manager in your field, then Confucianism will appeal to you because Confucianism is all about taking responsibility, how you manage your seniors and juniors. Basically, it's an intellectual pursuit. And then if Confucianism, for example, doesn't answer your question, then you can dip into another school. So for example, right. Confucianism right. is is not very heavy on how to manage peer relationships. So maybe that's when you dip into a bit of Lao Tzu. Mm. And for example, mm. it's not great on how to focus on mastering skills. So that's when you dip into Zhuang Tzu. Mm. It doesn't say too much about how to be a leader or a sovereign. That's when you dip into legalism, for example. So it's not like Western philosophy, where you have one school that has to contradict the other school. Mm. That's actually right, not right. what happened in Chinese philosophy, right? They can sort of mm. layer on top of each other. And it's not about one being better than other. It's like one showing you something which the other didn't. Hmm. Like a lot of people in China, they have nothing to do with Buddhism until they start thinking about their own death. And suddenly they, <laughs> they think a lot about Buddhism. <laughs> mm. And it's the way that all of these different schools have kind of syncretized. That word means they've blended together in China, especially in modern China, where everyone can dip into whichever school they want, depending mm -hmm. on what they need from it. Mm. Well, that's a really remarkable that you've had such a, a deep dive into Chinese culture, because if you've been here a very long period of time, I had another question about Singapore. My wife is a huge fan of Singapore, and there are a lot of ties between China and Singapore. Could you tell us mm -hmm. a, a little bit about what is the similar and what is dissimilar about Singaporean culture versus like Chinese uh, culture? Huh. Well, the obvious one is the speed of progress. I mean, Singapore only had its independence within our lifetimes. This is like in the last 50 years or so. Mm -hmm. And they've gone from a third world country to a first world country. I mean, that's very similar to what's happening in China right now. Mm -hmm. I would say Singapore is famous for 
its stable government. In fact, they've had no changes of government. Um, I think there's a similar focus on social order, that's for sure. They have a love of food. Like, oh my God, they are constantly eating. <laughs> so I think there are a lot of similarities. I guess the differences are, are also pretty obvious. I mean, the size. Singapore is just one city. And I think that allows it to experiment in this Petri dish. Um, of course, China looks to Singapore and see what they've done. And they try to take certain things and expand it to China. You, you've traveled around in China. Where have you been? Yes. I mean, especially these last few years <laughs> where, where none of us really could go anywhere else. Uh, so <laughs> up to Heilongjiang and then across to Gansu, down mm. to Yunnan, Guizhou, another good place. Was there like work involved? You were just like, you know. Yeah, I mean, some of them were to do with the podcast. So it does allow you to see a city from a tourist angle, but then you get mm. to know one layer underneath when you interview someone from that city. That's been great. A lot of uh, tourism as well just when things get tough in your city it's always nice to try and find countryside especially right. when you live in a urban jungle like beijing or shanghai can i go back to philosophy for a <laughs> sure, bit absolutely. i felt like i didn't oh, have enough uh, more philosophy. <laughs> dose of the, maybe not about the philosophy in itself but like spending a year or two studying chinese philosophy did it help you to understand china better I think it put into words the things that I had already noticed and experienced on a visceral level. It's about the way that China perceives the world, the way that the world perceives China, the prism which both sides are looking through when they are trying to understand each other or purposefully not understanding each other, mm. the language to really think about that in a deeper way, as opposed to just pulling my hair out mm. as to the state of the world these days. So I, I guess that's mm -hmm. the way I would answer your question. I, we would have no hair left. You know, <laughs> yeah. Seriously. Well, thank you so much for joining the show, Oscar. Are we wrapping up now? We are wrapping up, baby. Oh, uh, okay. Thanks, baby. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Jason.